welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way it is today. We are looking at modern Chinese history following revolutionary movements starting from around the year 1839, the First Opium War, when that kicked off. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. I'm starting this podcast as my first ever monetized podcast. The main podcast will always be free. Uh, if I get to releasing any episodes as, you know, special episodes, they'll eventually come out for free. Um, that's that's always going to be the main thing. I'm going to need to get to about a hundred paid subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, profiles of technology, zooming in on special interest items. Uh, you can join my Substack uh, to support the podcast as well as. For a greater connection with the podcast, you get behind-the-scenes stories, stories from my time in China, and uh, we'll be building that. Uh, hear more about that at the end of the episode. I think this one's going to be a bit long. In this episode, we're going to set the stage, explore a little of the world that is to change when the revolutionary fun gets going. So here we're going to look at the geography of China started off. Uh, and what international connections were really possible. Okay, the, the Tibetan Plateau is basically a wall. Uh, the shape of the Han Empire, uh, if you ever look at look at that, you, you see the, the kind of pseudopod reaching out toward Central Asia. That's Gansu province. Uh, the, the furthest most reach of Han control was at this city called Yumen in northwest China. Uh, that's, man, there are so many places in China I'd love to get back to, but, ah, hmm, life is only so long. Um, so, like, part of why that pseudopod reached out was, uh, it was kind of tracing along a river that could support settlement, and the, the Qinghai, what is now Qinghai province, and the Tibetan Plateau were just this this huge thing jutting out of the earth. And then above that, you have just the Mongolian plain. Just, there is nothing there. Mongolia and Tibet are really, really hard to settle and control without modern infrastructure and transportation. The Mongols were able to do what they did because their nomadic way of life allowed them to traverse desolate areas quickly and convert grass into food for themselves. You know, like they to drink mare's milk, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, actually, uh, me eating meat can be good for the environment because, like, if you graze them just on the countryside, then they they turn areas that would require huge amounts of irrigation to, uh, you know, get, you know, vegetables. Well, you can turn that into meat, which is energy dense, protein, fat. Okay. Um, okay. So, so there's Central Asia, and there's the Russian Empire over the top. Um, actually, one of the first places where the Qing Dynasty started to interact with uh, European notions of borders and sovereign states was in negotiation with the Russians. Uh, Catholic priests on either side of 
the negotiation would talk to each other in Latin, and then they'd translate back into Russian or into Manchu or Chinese. Uh, French so French intervention and colonization in Indochina. So what had been a uh, historically a Chinese protectorate or something uh, in Vietnam. Okay, well, the French took over. Uh, one of the, the main things uh, for China was cultural cohesion and ability to control land. So there were areas that were gradually assimilated into the uh, expanding colossus of what has historically been China. But assimilation is really one of the key, excuse me, assimilation is really one of the key things. Uh, so Vietnam was snipped off, Korea was never absorbed into China. Um, when you look at, so so what you might compare this to is America was able to take the northern territories of Mexico, so Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and everything above, Okay, but they didn't take all of Mexico because it had a high population and a different difficult uh, culture to assimilate. So they, they took the stuff that was easy to assimilate. Oh, and uh, the American industrial state uh, was able to build the railroads out there and do whatever it took to actually be able to exploit the land. So like then they were able to build cities with large populations out there so that it's just how it went, injustice aside. Okay, so the Qing Empire uh, maintained the Chinese tributary system. The uh, So you could say the political technology was not keeping pace with the economic technology going on outside of China. So joint stock companies uh, funding travel all over the world. Um, so, you know, like everybody can slip and fall. Everybody can drop a bowling ball on their toes, but if a bowling ball is dropped on your head after you've slipped and fallen, that's much, much worse. You know, so the... Like, so where... Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, the internal politics versus external politics. So... One of the main things in Chinese history is to keep internal enemies from causing trouble. And they weren't really playing the game the foreigners were playing. They didn't really have a foreign ministry until the the uh, Opium Wars forced them to accept foreign uh, embassies as as a thing. You know, it's it's kind of like China, and then everybody sends, uh, you know, ambassadors to you know, pay homage to the Chinese emperor. Uh, they had a ministry, they had a ministry of tributary affairs. So yeah, they're coming to bring tribute. Yeah, it'll go over well with rising European powers. Uh, China was not a mercantile sea power. Uh, yeah, they had coastal mercantile efforts, but it wasn't the same as a coordinated world encompassing effort. And, you know, with the, the vision that the uh, that the English ultimately dominated. Um, you know, the yeah, you you have the Ming Admiral Zheng He uh, from 1731 to 1435. Oh, that's his lifespan. Doing his his voyages, you know, even down to East Africa. 
but that didn't happen very much. Um, yeah, one one thing you really have to factor in is Captain Cook. Okay, this isn't in the notes. Uh, I'm looking it up right now because this is a really important fact. Okay, Captain Cook. Okay, typing it in. Yeah, okay, so this podcast is not perfect. So sorry. Um, Captain Cook lived from 1728 to 1779. Okay, so this is like just before the uh, Opium Wars are kicking off. This is just before the Opium Wars, just before you really, really get a lot of direct foreign contact with China. Captain Cook was instrumental in discovering things like vitamin C, keeping people from dying of scurvy. So aside from the naval element of that, uh, being able to keep ships on station for much longer, it meant that ships could travel much farther around the world uh, because all you have to do is keep the sailors alive and wind is free. So, you know, so ships can roll up from you know, from England as though China's right next door, though much, much farther next door than, like, France. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahon, uh, in his Influence of Sea Power Upon History, talked about technology in the present having parallels in the past. So sailing ships didn't need human power to go. Uh, the only problem is food to get you where you're going. So... Uh, one of the things about taking lessons from history is you, you have to apply it to the right level. A lot of colonization focused on securing trade routes and resupply points. Like so, when the, du the Dutch colonized South Africa, um, that was as a transit point on the way to the East Indies. Well, the British took over South Africa. They also colonized the island of St. Helena, where Napoleon uh, later uh, spent uh, a nice retirement. Uh, that was all to secure way stations for ships going to the Orient. Okay, the, the Canton system from 1757 to 1842. Why does it end in 1842? Well, Opium Wars. Okay, so this is the uh, state of things as we'll kick off the more detailed episodes, so we'll come back to this, but we'll give you the quick overview now. Trade was focused in Canton, uh, now Guangzhou, as a mixture of convenience for Europeans because it was closer to their Southeast Asian colonies, and it worked out for Chinese imperial policies. The Europeans wanted to trade, the Chinese wanted to trade, and then the Chinese emperor needs to maintain control and balance between the interests of everyone involved. And, of course, local interests were weightier than European interests. Like, so the people who actually vote for you or don't rebel against you, those are the people you want to keep happier longer. European interests were more unique, more of a black box. Uh, very good or very bad things could come out of that. When you, uh, so the emperor created this thing with uh, local elites controlling it. When you create an organization to command things on the ground, uh, far away from you, interests on the ground can work through that same institution that you set up and work back up to influence you. You know, a, uh, 
a uh, one-way road can become a two-way road if you change the signs. Uh, local oligarchs were a kink in the hose, making it hard for clear communication between foreigners and the Chinese authorities about how to open up the relationship for a greater potential. Like, so they they wanted to explore up around the, the coast of China, but uh, and we'll uh, get to some of the uh, adventures and misadventures that happened on that in uh, coming episodes, uh, but everything was had to run through Canton. Uh, miscommunication and ignoring overtures of friendship, that torpedoed a lot that could have happened. That's, uh, you know, really abstruse ways of saying things or, you know, uh, willfully exaggerating something for this reason or that. Um, also, uh, foreign power lording it over the Han, Although non-Han dynasties have legitimately held the mandate of heaven, it's still annoying to the Han. Uh, part of the Chinese nationalist revolution uh, that led to the end of the imperial system, it was about reasserting Han control. It's like, these, these Manchus, they're foreigners. We don't, we don't want these guys ruling over us. Okay, let's also look at the Chinese diaspora. Chinese traders went all over Southeast and East Asia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Korea, Japan. Uh, foreigners sometimes employed people from these communities to help them communicate and make contact with the relevant business and government connections to set up trade. Uh, Chinese sailors helped crew foreign ships. Chinese laborers were taken to various, for various foreign colonies. The Chinese diaspora also fed foreign ideas, money they had earned, and other connections back to China in some of the revolutions that we're going to be covering. You know, an ambulance was bought by Chinese laundry workers in New York City to, to uh, support the fight against Japan uh, before and during World War II. Foreign exploration and trade missions. Uh, so there was industrialization going on back in Europe. Uh, there was a need for export markets and sources of capital. So trade up to that point uh, for China, local Chinese traders had run around their end of the continent. Uh, New World silver came in uh, through the Manila galleons, so the Spanish would sail between Mexico and the Philippines, and then Chinese traders could run between the Philippines and the mainland of China. Uh, that was 1565 to 1815. If you'd like to know what happened in 1815, okay, well, that's the end of Napoleon. Um, yeah, Napoleon pretty much was the end of, of Spanish-American colonies. Uh, Portuguese Macau was leased as a trading post in 1557 from the Ming Dynasty. That was the jump-off point for other European powers, uh, in their uh, connections with China. Uh, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and later English competition for trade in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. So as they figured out things like, ah, you know what, okay, here it is, dang it, I, it is right here. Um, so as I talked about with Captain Cook, I, okay, silly me, I, yeah, this is why you review your notes before you begin recording a podcast. Captain James Cook, 1728 to 1779. Okay, so right before 
the opium wars are going to happen. You know, the the opium wars are forty years a twinkle in their historical parents' eyes. Uh not not you know they're you know when Cook dies, he he did experiments to defeat nutritional deficiencies like scurvy. That you know if your sailors are dying, that means you're not going anywhere. So. Um, uh, there were okay the development of the joint stock company and the ability to pour resources into the exploration of new markets, so the ability to reinvest profits quickly into new commercial ventures. Uh, military power follows uh, economic activity because economic power is what the power of the state partially rests on. You know you can go take things from surrounding countries, but eventually you just run out of things if they don't keep making wealth. Uh, empires based on sustained economic activity rather than territorial acquisition, political expansion, uh, resource and tribute extraction. Uh, that's what the European commercial powers were. Okay, Peter Padfield, P-A-D-F-I-E-L-D, Peter Padfield has a magnificent trilogy on uh, the development of naval power following the development of of maritime commerce i've read the first two books um okay so maritime empires aren't very workable without a solid commercial basis so if you look at the athenian empire before 400 bc okay well part of what sustained athens against uh against sparta was its port they were able to bring in food from the outside they were able to bring in men from the outside weapons uh, um the there's the city of athens and then there's the port of piraeus some way away then they built the, the long walls what the long walls were between the piraeus and athens where it was protecting a trade route so that athens could stay supplied even when they were besieged uh, the carthaginians from 650 to 146 bc carthago de lenda est um that that conflict uh, the the Punic Wars, it hinged on sea power. the The Romans had to figure out sea power. Uh, the Roman Empire was based on domination of the Mediterranean. It was really hard for them once they pushed out more and more inland. They, like they 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 were able to get back and forth between Europe and North Africa just fine. They were able to get. Like a lot of the story of the spread of Christianity, it's not just over Roman roads, it's over Roman sea lanes. Uh, so like the Europeans were running maritime empires, so they were able to roll up and knock on the door of China. Like, you know, like, like it's any other place, but the Chinese like didn't have a similar uh, maritime reach. Um, okay. Also, foreign missionary activity. Keep in mind the perennial Chinese concern over religions being the source of fun little cults that seriously threaten to destabilize regimes. You know, throughout the history of Christian missionary work, uh, you do have missionaries who go undercover when open religious work isn't allowed. You know, so whatever benevolent you know, th impulses they might have, undercover is suspicious. And weird little cults that like to that lead to the deaths of millions of people. Looking at you, Taiping Rebellion, um, 
you have to understand when authorities clamp down hard on that. Okay, uh, the Jesuits, uh, they were, the, the Jesuits were part of inspiring Latin American revolutionaries. Um, uh, Francisco de Miranda, God, he is a fascinating character. Um, he was, uh, he was the precursor to Simon Bolivar in Venezuelan and other Lat Lat South American independence movements. He was a fascinating character, very, very, very well read. Um, he would um, sleep with uh, any relevant person who was available. Uh, ladies, uh, God, that 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 guy, Francisco de Miranda, he he. Like he knew, like he met many of the founders of the American Revolution. He uh, was all over Europe. He commanded a detachment in the French Revolution. He went over to, well, he got some of his inspiration from the Jesuits. Uh, the Jesuits also were instrumental in resistance to Spanish and Portuguese exploitation of the natives. Uh, there was actually a Jesuit-run kind of semi-independent state in Paraguay for some years. Um, religion is sort of a third thing. Predators will take advantage of any opening. Like So it's not just religious people trying to screw China over. Predators will take, take advantage of, of anything. Um, so then, okay, you know, the, introdu the introduction of a new set of ideas around which to form weird little cults. The Taiping Rebellion, which uh, is going to come like 10 years after the first Opium Wars, that starts uh, with the introduction of a new set of ideas uh, around which these... Okay, the, the Taiping were basically a new iteration of the Yellow Turban Revolt, except that they had badly misunderstood Christian tracts. Um, and so they set their thing up. So yeah, that's setting the stage. There's going to be one more precursor episode before we get into the the main show. Uh, so closing this episode, so it's not so much a gathering of predators as that the Qing regime lost their political homeostasis through how things went. Um, it's that the, 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 okay, so the definition of homeostasis. Now, in a state of equilibrium, as in an organism or cell maintained by self-regulating processes, the ability and tendency of certain systems to maintain a relatively constant internal state in spite of changes in external conditions. This ability is achieved by the presence of feedback mechanisms which can adjust the state of the system to compensate for changes in the state caused by the external environment. So, like the Qing, we're not able to adjust with good feedback. It is exemplified in the homeothermal biological systems, such as animals, which maintain relatively constant blood temperature and composition in spite of variations in external temperature or the composition of the food ingested. I forget where I copied this from, but anyway. 
the ability of a system or a living organism to adjust its eternal environment to maintain a stable equilibrium, such as the ability of warm-blooded animals to maintain a constant temperature. So all these revolutions happened largely because the Qing dynasty lost its ability to maintain itself um, and you know keep out the bad guys. It was only at the founding of the People's Republic of China that all of that ended. No more uh, foreign spheres of influence on the coast, no more extraterritoriality, no more picking China over for you know what they could get from it. It was only 1949 that ended all that. Okay, so uh, if you would like to support the podcast, please go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C as in Chinese, R as in revolutions. Buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. It's kind of funny. It sounds like see our podcast. Okay, so uh, there's also the substack. Chinese Revolutions.substack.com. There you can get special content behind the scenes on the uh, creation of the podcast, uh, show notes, uh, like, like the meaning the outlines that I use, not just the summaries that you'll see on the website, um, stories from my time in China, and that's another way you can support the podcast. Again, I'm going to need to get up to about 100 paying subscribers monthly to be able to start producing special focus episodes. Uh, also, please reach us at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. would love to hear from you. So again, this has been Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you in the next episode.